Thank you, everyone. I appreciate that. Um, I, I too, I guess I'll be vulnerable, which I had planned to be, but uh, I think this is, you know, where the Lord's leading us in this situation. But, um, what I was talking about the, you know, this vacation was wonderful and I, I don't know, maybe this isn't your experience. I assume it's not. I feel like this is fairly unique, <laughs> but, um, my, my vacation, we haven't taken many vacations as family in our 10 years of marriage. We've been married for a decade and, uh, we probably taken like three or four vacations. That's just our family in that time. And um, I don't know why, but my vacations tend to be adventures and existentialism. They just, for whatever reason, maybe it's my own impulse, but I just, they always seem to hold weighty things. And and so that's just the way of my life, I guess. I tend to think in terms of everything having meaning and value and importance. And maybe I supercharge things with that. Uh, But, you know, it's just like experiences that I don't imagine are standard. Like, you know, the guy, we're driving down. It was like 14 hours the first day we drove to d- go down to Disneyland. And, you know, of course, the guy, we're, we're going around the pass, and uh, you've you got the big mountain on one side, right? And, of course, some guy who flies up behind us decides to get in front of us and slow down and honk and then flip us off. And, and he's flipping us off, and then he, he slows down more to honk multiple times to make sure we all see it. And he does that in front of all my kids and course and everything. And so as I'm praying in imprecatory prayer that half the mountain will fall off the side and crush his car, I'm debating whether that's righteous or unrighteous. I don't know, actually. You know, that's a pretty common psalm motif, actually, to pray for your enemies to be crushed and killed. So I, I did. Um, and I debated for a while whether that was righteous or unrighteous. I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's ambiguous to me at this point. Maybe a little of both. Um, but I will say that's the type of experience I'm talking about. Or for example, here's another example, right? Uh, my son, who I love dearly, um, part of this trip, we promised, uh, I, I made them promise up front. I was like, whatever you, if we're going to do this trip, it's going to be awesome, but you got to choose to be brave. That's just part of the condition. Eli was 48 inches with his braces exactly. So he could go on every ride. And I was like, hey, if we're going to do this, you have to choose to be brave. You're going to go on every ride. And so the first day, we're in California Adventure, and we go to the Incredicoaster. And Eli's never liked heights, and he's never liked just that feeling. that Even when he was a baby, like we'd put him up on the changing table, and he would just lose his mind because that feeling of unbalance was always so hard for him. And I have no doubt that had to do with the cerebral palsy. Um, so, you know, he... Mo took him on, was going to take him on it. And I think they only got in like three feet before they came back out. He just like couldn't do it. And um, so then I was just, you know, this is our first day at Disneyland, by the way. And so after thoroughly shaming my six-year-old for not going on this ride um, and how he promised and he lied to me and all this stuff, I was like, (laughs) it was like maybe... And he was he was kind of demoralized. And it was like maybe two or three hours later. Um, I was sitting at Pixar Pier. And I was sitting there on the bench eating a peanut butter and honey sandwich. And uh, crying openly in Disneyland. Because uh, I just had that sense. It, you know, I've... Just what I... You know how you believe some things about yourself? Um, I just always believed like my sense of compassion and, and just who I am. I always thought I would be a great parent of disabled kids and, uh, you know, kids with a disability like Eli. And it was just in that moment after all that had happened, I was sitting there and I was thinking, man, like 
I'm not the parent of a disabled child that I thought I'd be. <laughs> Thanks, Lathan. That's meaningful. And, you know, maybe that's the feeling that all parents of kids with disabilities have, that you're always inadequate. I don't know. I, I haven't talked about it enough to other parents to, to ascertain that, but, but that's my own experience. And, and, you know, this is like a real low moment for me to feel like I'm not the person that I thought I would be. And then by the end of the week, a Friday, we're back in California Adventure, and I was like, dude, we're going to do this. And I don't know what changed in me, but I was like, I, 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 I mean, I, I, till, I still told him, I was like, you're not doing anything else until we go on this coaster. So I was going to make him go on it multiple times. And we were just going to go in line. I had him in the seat and I had him buckled. And then he, he freaked out and they made us get off the ride. So we couldn't go on it. Like he wasn't stable enough to go on. They're like, no, if he's crying like that, we can't let you go. And I was like, I, originally I was like, hey, we're just going to go sit in the car for the rest of the day. But then I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to make it worse than that. We're going to go on this ride until you do it. And there's something in me that was like, Eli has to conquer this fear. He cannot be possessed by fear. And so we went the, the next time, and I had explained it. He's got this engineer's mind. He always wants to know how it works. He wants to know, how am I not going to fly out of this thing and die? So we talked about it for a long time. But finally, I just was like, Monique and Gwen and, and Sophia are going to go do something else. And him and I are just going to go on this ride over and over until he can do it. And we get on the second time, and he does it. And, like, because I, I, I was just praying for the ride to take off, because I knew as soon as it take off, they're not going to stop it. And he was, he, I, like, was seriously, like, the highlight of the trip for me, because he, 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 you know, he closed his eyes, but he realized that the fear was the thing that scared him. And the ride really wasn't bad. He was scared of the loop-de-loop and all this stuff, and he did it. Like, he didn't want to do it again, and that's fine. I just wanted him to try everything at least once. And he did it, and it was so awesome. And my son is so awesome, because then after that, he was like, let's trick mom and say that I didn't go on it, but I did, and then we'll be like, gotcha! And, and so we did that, and that was awesome, because we came in, and I like, had him look down, and he was all sad, and I was pretending to be angry at him. And then, and then we were like, oh, guess who has to buy me a spider bot? Because we told Eli we'd buy him this toy from, from Spider-Man if, we, if he went on it. So it was awesome. And, but I was so proud, like... It was like the lowest of lows. Like, I'm just, a, I'm a bad parent for this awesome son. And to like helping him conquer this fear that he couldn't get over. And, and just like the trip was defined by experiences like that for me. And I don't know, I, maybe I just attach to it. I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm beyond that. Maybe there's some narcissistic impulse in me that attaches more weight to things than it's necessary. But what's the point of all this? Why am I saying all this? The point of it is this. <clears throat> I think it's because of books like Revelation. I think it's because of the New Testament eschatological understanding, the understanding of the ends towards which we are headed, that eternal perspective, not just a worldly, earthly one. But that perspective has so invaded my life that everything I do, I, I look at in terms of that. I look at in terms of the, the historical picture of what I'm doing. And that's the beauty of a book like Revelation because it does paradoxical things at the same time. It's looking at the cosmic scope of history and all of a sudden you feel very small and insignificant. And your life seems like just, what, what, what could it matter in the scope of what God is doing on the grand scale of things? 
And at the same moment, <laughs> you find yourself attached and, and invested in the historical significance of the grand cosmic scheme of what God is doing. That your suffering and pain are not just random. They're not just arbitrary. They're not just part of the machine in which we live. But they actually have purpose and value. That they're significant and meaningful to God. That is transcendent and beyond and as, as majestic as he is, he actually is present in the small things of your life. He's actually present to help me help Eli conquer his fear. And that that matters to him. God, (laughs) the one who created all things, who's above all things, whose galaxy we cannot even begin to explore, whose oceans on this planet we cannot even begin to explore, let alone the vastness of of the cosmos. (laughs) He, He cares about that. He's so near and intimate with us. It's books like Revelation that taught me that. So we're going to start this book tonight that at the same time is making us realize that there's a huge plan that goes far beyond us. We see ourselves in it. That is important. That the life of the individual matters. And as always, I said I was going to start each week with reading a martyr story. And this one's really short, so don't worry. It's not like Stephen where it was like 20 minutes of me reading. Just a couple verses. But I saved this one for the first time that I was going to go through the text because it was important to me. Maybe it's just my own personal experience that makes it important to me. But I think it's important to John, too, who wrote this book. This is Acts chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. That's it. That's all you hear about that martyr story. Someday I'm going to preach an awesome sermon on that passage. Just those two verses. Probably when I go through Acts or something. But I know I will because it's is meaningful to me because I always think about this fact in light of John, right? So John is the only one of the apostles who lives until he's an old man and dies of old age. He's, he's, most people think he's 90 when he writes, you know, he's, he's an old man when he writes this book. It's 90 AD. So he's kind of on the last legs of his life, and he's going to write this book. Every other apostle other than John martyred. John's the only one to die of old age. In fact, the tradition goes they tried to boil him in oil, and he survived it. So they couldn't kill him, and so they exiled him. That's why he's on Patmos. That's what the tradition about John is. John, all these years ago in Acts 12, it's interesting you never hear John in his writings mention his his brother. I always found that intriguing. Sometimes I wonder if it was just too, too painful for him. But that's all you hear. There's only one apostle whose martyrdom is mentioned in the scriptures. It's James, John's brother. He was beheaded by Herod. He's the first of the apostles to die. 
course, the next thing that goes on is Peter's arrested. You think Peter's going to get killed too, but an angel of the Lord frees him and he walks out of jail. But James was the first to be martyred, the first to be reunited with his Lord. And I imagine that sparked a lot of things in John. That he was happy his brother was with the Lord. That he was grieved to live the rest of the, li- of the life that he had to live without him. But I've always found that story interesting. Maybe, I, obviously, I get it. It's probably reflective of the fact of losing my own brother. What that means to me. But, yeah. That's the first of the apostles to be martyred. Like I've said, the context of suffering is necessary to understand this book because the people in this time are suffering. And, and it's hard, as I've said, for Americans who live in relative comfort compared to the rest of the world to understand Revelation. It looks like a book of fear, like Mom has said before. It, it looks like a book of fear because we are not accustomed to suffering. <laughs> but to the world that is suffering... Revelation looks like hope, because God's going to do something about it. So we start that tonight. But before we start that, I I need to give some level of introduction for you to understand the book. Um, I know I talked about terms and definitions. I'll I'll try to be um, explanatory so that, you you know, if you miss that, you're not missing anything. Uh, But we did that first week, and then I showed some other eschatological uh, passages to consider, then I was gone last week at Disneyland, Tyler led, uh, talking about kind of what Revelation makes us feel and what we experience with it. And tonight we're going to start the introduction to Revelation, which is verses 1 to 8. So we're in chapter 1 of Revelation, verses 1 to 8. So this is just your intro. It's the prologue to the book. Okay? But before we do that, I want to talk to you about some things that are introductory, which, is, which are these things. We'll start with themes. There's several themes that show up in the book. They're consistent, and they show up, like, continually. And the first, in, in, in many ways, kind of, uh, I won't say the most important, but maybe the most relatable to us, is suffering and glory. The book is immensely concerned with what it means to suffer and to be persecuted and what comes as a result of that. And actually, the New Testament itself is consistent, that, that suffering precedes glory. And of course, the pattern for that has always been Jesus, who suffered and died and then was glorified, right? And so the same is true for the Christian, that there is a reality in which suffering is inevitable, and the Christian must suffer before they find glory. And that's a theme that runs through. You'll see it in the letters to the churches. It's expected that they're going to face persecution, but if they, can over, if they can overcome, right, that's the, that's the refrain throughout the letters to the church. If they can overcome, there's something waiting for them. Okay, the next theme is this, God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. He can do as he pleases. And this comes throughout the book, that God is going to, he's not just, uh, he's not just an indirect participant. He's not just someone sitting back and letting us do as we, as we choose, per se. But he is an active, involved person in what's going on, in world history, in in our daily lives. That this God is a God who is part of what the fabric of life is. And that's important to Revelation. Third is judgment, of course. If God is sovereign, if he is creator, if he is redeemer, he is judge. And of course, this is the one most people don't like. 
Um, it's vital. It's integral to who God is. And that's, I, I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> There's no escaping God the judge. It's, it's part and parcel of who he is. If he's creator, if he's redeemer, he is also judge. He has the right to judge what we've done and to make us pay for it. He is that, he has that role. That's just who he is. Now he's gracious enough to offer a way out of that. That's the whole point of what Jesus came to do. But if you reject Jesus, judgment is all that's left. Condemnation. There's no other chance. There's no other hope. It's judgment or Jesus. So, that's key to the book as well. The whole core of the book is about what judgment is coming. Okay? Lastly, history. Like I said, eschatology, right, the, that study of last things that we talked about, eschatology, is, is really focused on how God operates in history. And this book is full of that. It's full of this idea of God standing outside and above history and orchestrating the events of it, being behind it. This is not just some random arbitrary thing that happened and this happened in this year and this happened in this year, but it's that God has been planning this. It's headed somewhere. That's a key theme of the book as well. So those are kind of four major themes of the book. But there's also the purpose of the book. Why did he write it? And that's actually different than the themes. The themes relate to it, but it's not the purpose. The purpose of the book is this, to encourage Christians to persevere in the face of suffering and to warn them against compromising with the world. See, the heart of the book, if you read those letters to the churches of Asia Minor at the very beginning of the book, what John's trying to do is remind them that to be with the world, to be like the world, is to be against Christ. And to be for Christ, you cannot be like the world. They're two opposing kingdoms. They don't, you can't be a, a member of both. You have to choose. And for Christians, of course, the temptation is we're surrounded by that. We can have a worldly perspective in it to sink back into that. And so what John's trying to do to these churches is remind them, listen, don't compromise. Don't be idolatrous. Don't involve yourself in the sinful ways of the world. If you can avoid them, you should. You know, in the Roman world, it's like, why are you going to feasts where they offer sacrifices to idols? Why are you willing to offer sacrifices to the emperor for emperor worship? Christians shouldn't. John's warning against that type of thing in that era, and of course it's still applicable today. There's always a temptation to be drawn back to the world for the Christian. Because it's the pilgrimage we're on, right? It's the place in which we dwell. The New Testament talks about Christians as not being citizens of the world, but aliens, right? Immigrants, sojourners, foreigners, because this isn't our land. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's what First Peter says. Okay? And of course, the others persevere because suffering's here. You got to make it through it. The human response, of course, in the face of suffering is to find a way out of it, which is what's leading them to compromise. So that's John's purpose in writing this book. Next, genre. 
uh, literary genre of the book. This is interesting, and of course, this is a specific interpretational point, right? It's, it actually affects how you interpret the book. What kind of genre is it? How should we interpret the book? Well, there's three different elements that relate to the book, and of course, different people take it differently. But the first is apocalyptic. An apocalyptic revelation is, is certainly apocalyptic. It's actually one of the first words that appears in the book, apocalypsis, right? It means revelation. But apocalyptic is a whole genre of literature that was written in the first, first and second century, and that has to do with this kind of grand vision of history and, and angelic messengers and all these kind of supernatural elements. You're seeing both heaven and earth and seeing viewpoints from both of them. And that's the apocalyptic genre, and definitely Revelation falls into that. But then the question becomes, okay, what is apocalyptic? And, and a lot of people just say it's a heightened form of prophecy. And in fact, the book itself, it openly says it is a prophecy. The book claims to be a prophecy. And of course, prophecy is this idea of, well, in one sense, telling the future, which is what, how most people understand prophetic. Uh, but that's not actually all that it means. In fact, in the Old Testament, prophecy is much more closely related to calling people to faithfulness than it is future telling. There is future telling in the Old Testament, but the primary goal of Old Testament prophetic is to remind people of covenant and say, look at the law. Look at what God's telling you to do. You're not doing it. You got to get back to doing it, right? That's prophecy. And lastly is epistolary, which an epistle is just a letter. So all the New Testament letters, John's framework for the book is actually a letter, he writes it as a letter to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And so that has some implications as well. What does this mean if all these visions are part of a letter to churches? Those are the three different genres that are found. So you can see that this is very complex as a document, which is part of the reason there's so much confusion around it. Around it. Lastly, structure. I'm not going to comment on the structure of the book that I, I think I've come to the conclusion that I agree with. Uh, until we get to chapter 4. But for now, I'm just going to make some preliminary com uh, just comments on it. And that's this. The, the two main understandings of the structure of the book, which leads to many different interpretations, are this. It can be considered chronological, which of course means that the, the events of the visions, particularly from chapters 4 to 22, are chronological, meaning they're in sequence. They're, they're happening in order. So when it says there's seven seals. You've got first seal, second seal, second seal, third seal, fourth seal. They're happening in order. They're, they're sequential. And then when you get to seven trumpets, the seven trumpets follow the seven seals. And when you get to the seven bowls, they follow the seven trumpets, right? It's, it's all just in order. The other is called recapitulatory, which just means that it, it repeats itself. So now when you're looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven seals and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven trumpets and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bowls, actually it's just telling the same event from different lenses. The first seven are the same as the middle seven are the same as the last seven. They're just from different angles. It's like you're looking at the same event from a different perspective. That significantly cha changes how you understand what the book's trying to communicate. Of course, if you're a futurist, you believe the book's about the future, you're going to see it as chronological and say, none of this stuff's happened. 
If it's recapitulatory, then you tend to find more amillennial interpretations because you can say, well, this is about stuff that's already happened or is currently happening in the life of the church. So that's significant. But just know that those are the two main ways the structure is interpreted. Either they, they're talking about this in a sequence or they're talking about it as repeating itself. Lastly, before we get to the book, important things to remember. One, use of the Old Testament. This book, more than any other book in the, Old, in the New Testament, references the Old Testament. And it's odd because it almost never quotes the Old Testament. You're used to seeing formal quotations. Well, they'll say like, as is said in the prophet Isaiah, and then they'll quote a verse. That almost never happens in Revelation. And yet the book is more full of Old Testament references that are not quotes, at least explicit quotes, than any other book in the New Testament. It it is perpetual. You will see after the first eight verses tonight, how many times the Old Testament is referenced in just eight verses. It's immense. And I think there's a significance to that. Why? Because John, when he writes this book, he's talking about the wrapping up of all things. This is not just about the New Testament period or the future. It's about everything. Everything that's happened since Genesis 1, since the creation of the world. He's he's wrapping it all up. He's bringing the Old Testament and the New Testament together. He's finding their place. They all are fitting together because it's the revealing of God's plan. So the use of the Old Testament, it's really significant to understanding the book. Second, symbolic language. The book is full of symbols, full of them. Just as an example, you're going to constantly encounter numerology, right? The the idea of a number as a symbol, a number meaning something, right? And you you may not understand that yet, but you've heard the numbers, right? You've heard, oh, 666. It's the devil's number. Or you've heard that the number seven has a meaning, or the number 12 has a meaning, or there's just, there's, there's symbolic weight to the number. And so there's all kinds of symbols throughout the book. And of course, a big interpretive question is whether you're supposed to take those symbols as literal, or this is just exactly what it's talking about, what it says. This is an actual dragon that comes. This is an actual locust that comes with the head of a man and the tail of a scorpion. Or is it symbolic? Is there some reality behind it that it's referring to, but it's not, that's not what it actually is, right? So that's another question. Lastly, past, present, and future. For every position, I've told you, there's, there's every which way of interpreting this book. There's people who say every part of this book was fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Totally past. There's people who say it's eternally present. This applies to every person, every Christian, every believer throughout history, and they can all apply it equally. And then there's some people who say it's completely future. Everything in the book has yet to happen, or at least from chapter 4 on, it has yet to happen. Completely a future thing. But I don't think anyone actually interprets it exclusively one way. Everyone, at least at some point, interprets that there's some past, present, and future in the book. The question is, where? Where is it past? Where is it present? Where is it future? And in my opinion, all of those elements are present in part because, like I said, this is about the wrapping up of everything. And not only that, these are patterns you see throughout history. You know, that great phrase, that great cliche, history repeats itself. That's true. And I think the book of Revelation is trying to communicate that. 
That's why we can so often look at these events and throughout history see events that seem to mimic each other in cyclical fashion. Why so many people throughout history have thought, no, I know the book of Revelation is happening right now. And they said that in the medieval age, and they said that in the patristic age, and they said that at every point throughout Christian history, from the time of the Lord on, they've all believed it was applied to them. And that's, I think that's actually part of it. I think that's an intention of it. There's something relatable to these circumstances of suffering, of persecution, and of coming judgment. But I also believe that there's a climactic one to come, the final one. And I think the book does relate that to us. But it also is relatable because it's happened in history over and over and over. Empires rise and empires fall. Right? These events are, are human. So that's my perspective on it. But you've got to remember, many people try to interpret this in a very simplistic way. And the book is not simple. It is a complex book. And what it requires, it's constant interpretive attention, paying close attention, looking at all the Old Testament references, remembering that it could be symbolic, it could be literal, remembering that this could be past, present, or future. You've got to look at it all. So it's very hard to interpret, is my point. Okay, let's start the book. Revelation 1. Well, it just got eight verses. Revelation 1, the revelation... Of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which, much, which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Revelation there, if you're looking at the word revelation, that's the word apocalypsis. That's the, the apocalypse. So this book gets its title the revelation or the apocalypse from that word. That's the Greek word for it. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, in our minds, we think of like, I don't know, fallout or something, right? You think of like nuclear destruction and that's an apocalypse. We, we think about that, right? And you have, all, you have entire genres of things, movies, video games that are based on apocalypse. That's not what it means. It means revelation. The apocalypse is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, this is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And, and in that case, of Jesus Christ is generic. We have to figure it out. I, I think it's the revelation that was given to Jesus Christ is what it's trying to communicate. This revelation is actually from Jesus. And it says, God gave him. Who's the him in that sense? Well, it's Jesus. This is a revelation from Christ that God gave to Christ for him to show to his servants. And it's the things which must soon take place. Now that's a loaded phrase because it comes from somewhere. <laughs> Already, we have an Old Testament reference. Okay? Daniel 2. Daniel 2, verse 28. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. If you remember Daniel, right, he's in the Babylonian court at this point. And the Babylonian king has a vision, Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel's there. And he's going to interpret it. He says, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. What will take place? That what will take place that 
things that must take place. If you look at the Greek of the Old Testament, when the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the New Testament in Revelation, it's the same words. He's referring to Daniel 2, the things that must take place. So here it says, though, in the latter days, and of course the latter days is eschatological wording in the Old Testament for the age to come. Those last days, the latter days, the ones that are to come, those days when, when God comes and makes everything right. That's the last days or the latter days. John changes that part of the quotation. He changes it to what must soon take place or what must take place quickly in some translations. Okay, let me finish this reference here. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place, the things that would take place in the future. In the future is not a direct translation. It's an interpretation. It says in the future in the translation. What it actually says there is after this, the things that will take place after this, which is not so important right now, but it, you'll see that that phrase after this is language that's going to reappear in Revelation over and over. And what's it referring to? Well, if you look here, the after this is in the same spot as the latter days, right? Those two phrases in those two verses are parallel. What must take place in the latter days? What would take place in the future or the actual literal words after this? So it looks like in the latter days and after this are, are comparable. They're, they're interchangeable. They're the language for the last age. That after this, that's used in that way. And the latter days. But John has taken both of those and replaced it with what must take place soon. Or what must take place quickly. What's significant about that? is that John is placing himself in the latter days. See, for what Daniel was, this is what's going to take place in the latter days. For John was, it's going to happen soon. Because John found himself in those latter days. Because when did the latter days start, according to the New Testament? With the birth of Jesus. Jesus is the one who inaugurates the last days. And in there we find something very important for the book of Revelation, which is this theology that's called already and not yet, or inaugurated eschatology. And what that means is that in some sense, the kingdom of God, what God had planned for these last days, already took place when Jesus came the first time. Right? We're already in the kingdom of God. Is that true? Yeah, we've started the kingdom of God. We're actually part of it. Is there yet a fuller representation yet to come? Absolutely. We have not fulfilled it completely. Are we saved? Yes, we're already saved. Is there a salvation yet to come? Yeah, there is. The New Testament uses the language of you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. 
past, present, future. Why? Well, because in one sense, the already has, it's already happened. We've experienced it. But in another sense, we're still waiting for the consummation. We're still waiting for the final representation of that to happen. Do we already have the, the experience of God? Do we, does he dwell among us and in us? Absolutely. Are we in the fullness of God's presence? Not yet. Not yet. We are not in the full triune presence of God. That's what new creation will be. So that eschatology, that in, what's called inaugurated eschatology, which means Christ inaugurated it. He started it. But it has not yet fully come to pass. It's called, oftentimes it gets, uh, the idiomatic way of saying it is already and not yet. That means inaugurated eschatology. There's, a, there's an already aspect of what Jesus did. It's already happened. But there's a not yet aspect. It, it's still coming. Okay. That's really significant, I think, for understanding Revelation. So, back to Daniel. What Daniel's saying, this is what, what the Lord's revealed to you, Nebuchadnezzar, is what's going to happen in the future, what's going to happen in the latter days. John is intentionally referencing Daniel and says, the Lord's shown me what must take place soon, quickly. Why, why the change? Like I said, because John sees himself as in the latter days. Why? Because he has seen Jesus. He walked with him. And in fact, even now in this moment, as he writes this, he had a revelation from him about what would happen. Some ways, the revelation is stuff that actually already has happened. But in some ways... Is about what has yet to come. Okay? That's my take on it. So, he sent it to communicate by his angel to his bondservant, John. And John is the one who testified to the word of God, who testified to the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is, in my opinion, this is a reference to both the scriptures, the word of God, that would be kind of this Old Testament at the time, was their scriptures, right? And the testimony of Jesus, the one who John walked and saw, knew that Jesus' teaching was authoritative. And he saw it. He he literally saw Jesus' teaching. He saw his ministry. And John is the one who witnessed to both of those, who testified to both of them. The power of the scriptures and the Old Testament and the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, because I walked with him and saw him. Yep, even all that he saw, all that John saw that Jesus did. He's testified to both those things. And now he's bringing this revelation from Jesus. Okay. Now, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, Here, John explicitly calls this book a prophecy. So whatever you think about the genre of the book, it must be prophecy at least, because he says it is. He calls it a prophecy. And those who are going to read it and hear the words of it are blessed. Well, you're blessed. There you go. You have it. You've been blessed by hearing the words of the prophecy. But you have to heed the things which are written in it. You have to obey, for the time is near. Now, 
Those of you who haven't been here, you probably won't necessarily understand this. I'm sorry, I didn't print out the sheet of terms. I should have. So you can have copies of it each week. But when it says, for the time is near, for those of you who have been here, the preterist, right, the one who believes this is all past, what are they going to say? <laughs> They're going to say, yeah, the time is near. Because it happened in 70 AD when John was writing this. Preterists believe in an early interpretation of the dating of the book, that it happened in 50 or 60 AD was when it was written. So they say, yeah, the time's real near from when John wrote it. John wrote it in 50 or 60 AD, and so this is talking about 70 AD when all this is going to take place. But for other people, they just see it as a general term of nearness, right? That this is the eternal near, right? Like at any moment, it could be near. We're in the last days, so any point in the last days, Jesus could make this happen, this prophecy. Okay. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. All of a sudden, it looks like a letter. This is the exact heading to every letter in the New Testament. Grace and peace to you. Okay, so now we know it's also a letter. John's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. Who is that from, the grace and peace? It's from him who is and who was and who is to come. Let's stop there because we've got a reference. We've got to stop and look at Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That is the word, the Hebrew word, Yahweh. That's the personal or covenant name of God. Right, Yahweh. It's interesting because it's always translated, at least in English translations, as I am who I am or I am. The actual verbal form of it in Hebrew is he will be. He will be. But of course, to be is such an interesting word in any language, right? Because it, it, it is just about the idea of what? Existence. That something is. When you look at this, this name of, of God, Yahweh, it's his personal name. It's actually about his existence. It's about he is the self-existent one. Nothing caused him to be. He is. He was. He is to come. Past, present, and future, in terms of his essence, are meaningless because he's beyond them. He just is. With that being the case, this name has gotten interpreted over time to just be about existing in all forms of time and space, right? He's the omnipresent one. He's the one who's everywhere. He's the one who's in all time. And so this name actually is where we get the basis for this. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. That's directly an interpretation of that passage in Exodus 3.14. The the self-existent one. He was. He is. He is to come. Who's that talking about? It's talking about the Father. This is a Trinitarian statement that's about to be made. Grace and peace to you from the Father. 
He who was, who is, and who is to come. Interestingly, it's also polemical. It's also, it's also fighting against the pagan nature of the culture. Because this phrase, who was, who is, who is to come, is found in many documents about Zeus. Zeus is, Zeus was, Zeus is to come. John here is saying, no, 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 <laughs> it's not Zeus. Yahweh is the one who is, who was, who is to come. So this is about the Father, okay? And from the seven spirits are who are before his throne. Well, already we've seen the number seven twice on four verses. So what's the seven spirits? The seven spirits who are before the throne. Seven is a number that has a pretty consistent meaning. In fact, it's the most consistent number in all of Scripture, actually. The one that always shows up. Not that it can't be literal also, but it always has symbolic weight, symbolic import. And the weight of the number seven is always this. It's completeness or perfection. It's that the fullness of something has, is there. And it probably most likely gets its meaning from, from Genesis, right? From the beginning. What's the first thing to happen? Well, God creates in a week. He creates in seven days or six days of creation and one day of rest. And the, the completeness of that act, the completeness of the creation act, imbues seven with a symbolic weight that's about completeness. And so when it says the seven spirits who are before the throne, most likely it's referring to the fullness or completeness of the spirit who is there. In fact, maybe a better translation would be the sevenfold spirit. Right? It, this is the Holy Spirit. This is from the Father, he who was, who is, and is to come, and from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is before his throne. And from, well, let me go back to seven spirits. Zechariah 4, this is a reference to that. This passage is going to be important later on in the book. He said to me, what do you see? This is to Zechariah, the Lord speaking to him. And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right, one on the left. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Everyone knows the next verse because it's taken out of context, but this is what it's referring to. So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The seven lamps are a direct relation to God's Spirit. God's Spirit is the seven lamps. And you're like, well, I didn't see the, the connection that explicitly. You make it seem a lot more explicit than it is, Jeremy. Well, thankfully, Revelation 4 will make it explicit for us. Revelation 4, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. This is a reference to the fullness of the Holy Spirit being present before the throne. Seven spirits, the sevenfold spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. Okay, and it's a, like I said, it's a Trinitarian statement from the Father, from the Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, complete the Trinity. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
That's a quote from Psalm 89. We're not done with the Old Testament yet in this passage, Psalm 89. This is about a psalm about the messianic anointed king that's coming, the Davidic king. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. Then in verse 27, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And then you go on in the, in the psalm, verse 37, it shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful, Selah. All that word about Jesus that was just mentioned is all found in Psalm 89, which is, like I said, a messianic psalm. The Davidic king is coming. And he's all these things. So this verse is telling you Jesus is that Davidic king of Psalm 89. He's the one who will be the king, the anointed one on the throne. And he's the firstborn of the dead. He's the faithful witness. He's the one who witnessed to who God is. That's what that refers to. He's the firstborn of the dead. He is what's firstborn? He has the right of inheritance. He has all the prerogatives that come with being firstborn. They're his. Why? In what way? Because he's the first of a new creation. That's why it's firstborn from the dead. Jesus' resurrection marks him out as the firstborn of the new creation. The old creation's going to pass away, but the new creation will last. And there's a firstborn, the, one, the first one to be resurrected, the first of all that is new. It's Jesus. And he will be the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's gonna, it will all be his kingdom. Nothing will be outside his purview. He will be over all of it. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which is a reference to Exodus 19, right? He's applying to believers in Jesus what was applied to the nation of Israel. Exodus 19. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, mine. and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. But they're not just spoken to the sons of Israel here. Now they're being spoken to the church. This is a letter to the church what was true of Israel, or at least was supposed to be true of them, will be true of the, of the church. I have made you a kingdom of priests. I have made you kings and priests in my service. Okay. Verse 7 and 8. This is the most explicit reference in the whole book. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is about who? It's about Jesus, still talking about Jesus in that Trinitarian quotation. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is a mashup. Verse 7 is a mashup of two Old Testament quotes. This is a mashup of Daniel 7, I think verse 13. 
and Zechariah 12.10. Now, two verses have been smushed, okay? Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay? One coming on the clouds like a son of man. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Daniel 7.13. Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me. This is God speaking, by the way. Will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him. That's interesting. As one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn. Right? They will look, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's Zechariah 12. Clearly. Now he's combined these two verses. And most of the time you'll see that John uses these in the context of the Old Testament. When he's talking about the Old Testament, he's not just taking these verses and throwing whatever meaning he wants onto them. He's using the Old Testament verses to make sense of what he's saying. He's saying Jesus is coming with the clouds, the one like a son of man. He's inheriting a kingdom. We just read that in Daniel 7. The whole point is he goes up to the Ancient of Days... And he's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Jesus is, that's going to happen. And not only that, but every eye. Interestingly, this has been universalized, hasn't it? What was in Zechariah 12 is specifically the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Right? At the end. When, when you get to, to Revelation 1, he's not the house of David in Jerusalem. Every eye will see him. All the tribes of the earth, everyone's going to see him and will mourn over him. So it is to be amen. And if you look at Zechariah 12, the context of that, that mourning, why are they mourning? Well, because they pierced him. What kind of mourning is this? This is an interpretive point. Some people read it and they say the mourning is because they're about to be judged for killing Jesus doesn't look like that to me in Zechariah 12. It looks like repentance. They're mourning over him bitterly like the weeping over a firstborn. They're sad. They're grieved that they killed him. This is a statement about the repentance of people looking at Jesus. Jesus isn't going to inherit a kingdom, and when that happens... All the tribes of the earth. It's not saying every individual is going to mourn. But from peoples of every, every group on the, on the face of the planet, there will be those who will see him and, and be grieved. They'll be cut to the heart. They'll repent. Now again, this is a statement that is an already not yet statement. Even here, this early, in verse 7 of the whole book, This is an already not yet statement. Why? Because Jesus has a kingdom. He inaugurated it already. 
Christians are his kingdom. If you're a part of the church, you make up his kingdom. But yet, there's, a, there's still a coming to be had. There's still a kingdom to be brought to fruition completely. Because to me, it doesn't yet look like he's ruler over all the kings of the earth, does it? That seems like there's something still awaiting for that to happen. But in another sense, he, he, he's already started this. And we, we who have repented in a spiritual way, our eyes have seen him. Him who we pierced. Us whose sins put him on the cross. And we have wept and been grieved over our sin that placed him there and repented of it from all the tribes of the earth. Could we fulfill Zechariah 12? No, we couldn't. We are not of the house of David. We are not the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We have no Jewish lineage. This verse cannot apply to us. But John says, no, (laughs) In light of what I heard from Jesus, now I realize not only the inhabitants of Jerusalem, not only the house of David, but there will be those from all the tribes of the earth who will repent over Jesus. Interestingly, this still has yet to happen. The house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem have not yet wept over the Messiah. But this has, at least in part, there is an already aspect to this, but I still think there's more to come, right? That's, that's the hope anyway, the hope of the Christian world, that people will, we still can see people repenting, coming to faith, mourning over, over their sins and over what caused Jesus to need to go to the cross. So it is to be, amen. And then the Lord says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, What's that mean? It was the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. That's what that means. He's saying, I am the first and the last. Later on, he says, I'm the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega from end to end and everything in between. That's what it's implying. The alpha and the omega. Nothing is outside my purview. Why? Because I'm the almighty. I'm the one who is and who was and is to come. Beginning and the end past, present, and future. I'm all. I'm there. Nothing will escape my plan. That's how the book intros. Now, it's only after this that John is going to explain, starting in verse 9, that he's going to explain how he received these visions and how he was was in the Spirit, and then the Lord revealed this to him. But this is all just a prologue, an intro. And in the intro, we see that this, this book's a prophecy. It's going to have some prophetic words for us. And we need to be reminded that the Trinity itself, himself, they're for us. They want to give grace and peace to us. From the one who is, who was, who is to come, the, the Father, from the sevenfold Spirit, from the Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, He wants us to have grace and peace. And we know that he is coming, that there is 
a sense in which this has already happened and a sense in which it still has yet to come. That he, there is a coming of Jesus yet to take place. That many will repent at that sight. And for those of us who already have, we've experienced this in a spiritual way. Just as he planned. Okay? I hope you can see, as I said, it's heavy sledding through this. Because in the eight verses, I mean, look at how many Old Testament references we had. None of them were quotes, except maybe this is as close as you get to one. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. I mean, we went through eight or nine different references in eight verses. It's just immense. And this is like this on every page. The book is chock full of it. Because John is writing the summation of human history, right? That everything that has ever happened, that is happening, that will happen, is all wrapped up in this plan of God that's centered on the Messiah, on Jesus, and the pouring out of his spirit. That's the center of the plan. And it all has to be fulfilled in, in what Jesus is going to do, what he has done what he is doing. So that's the intro to the book. So the next week we'll go through the first vision. It's the first vision before the the letters to the churches, right? He writes letters to the seven churches. But first he has this vision of one like a son of man. Remember from Daniel 7, we saw that. Behold, he is coming on the clouds, one like a son of man. Well, he's going to have a vision of the son of man in verses 9 to 20 of chapter 1. So we'll talk about that next week. But I hope now that I've given you a framework, we can just focus in on, on the text, on what it has to say in the actual verses. But I wanted to give you a preliminary introduction because like I've said, this, this book is it's hard. It's a hard book to understand. But I'm praying the Lord will give us insight into it and we'll have a good time studying it. Thank you guys. I love you. Appreciate you all. Let's go have some dessert. Amen. Am I going to sing about dessert? No, oh, no, probably not tonight. No, do you want me to? Like a blessing? I wish I knew that. I I, I had a professor at uh, at Western. He was an an adjunct professor who would come in and out. His name was Tim Mackey. He's awesome, but he. Uh, he studied uh, uh, Old Testament Hebrew language, and he would sing. He would sing the blessing from of the priestly blessing over us sometimes. They have. I don't know if you know this, but the whole Old Testament, like the whole Jewish Old Testament, well, for them, the the Hebrew scriptures, um, it's it's cadenced. It's it's literally written with cantillation. So they sing it every week in the synagogue. Yeah, the, they actually have marks that tell them how to sing it. So like it's it's very interesting, but it's a very like kinetic experience that's <laughs> always sung. But it's really pretty. Love y'all. I'm gonna turn this off now.